0: Hello, I am David Oakes and this is a special season of Trees A Crowd. This season, as you are hopefully well aware by now, I am uprooting the secrets and stories beneath the 56-ish native trees of the British Isles. Or to put it more melodiously... Uprooting the secrets and stories beneath the 56-ish native trees of the British Isles. This week, tree number 26... The white beam, Sorbus aria. Right, this week we're going to be having a little bit of a science lecture. We're looking into taxonomy and we're looking into elephants. As you'll have noticed, each week I diligently provide you with the scientific name for the weekly species in question, which is pointless because surely Bella's sung versions are more than enough. Well, this needless Latin name consists of two parts and it is known as a binamen. The first word represents the genus which in the whitebeam's case is sorbus this automatically shows us that the whitebeam is in the same genus as the rowan sorbus aucuparia and the wild service tree sorbus torminalis the second word denotes the species in the whitebeam's case this is aria so it is simple you see the binomial sorbus aria written down and you know you are reading a geeky book all about whitebeams well sort of in the case of our native whitebeam, its full name should technically have three words—a trinomen. It should be Sorbus aria, aria, because our common whitebeam is actually one of many, many, many native whitebeam subspecies. And, parenthesis, for the botany geeks out there, I am well aware and ignoring the fact that our whitebeam is the type species to which all other whitebeams are compared, and as such, good actually be called by the Bynum Sorbus Aria. So what the hell? What the hell is a subspecies? Because at school I was taught the mnemonic King Philip came over from Great Spain in order to help me learn the way to classify the animal kingdom. Kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. And there is no subspecies in that mass of wordplay. I was also not taught about the three domains which now precede kingdoms, or about super-species, infra-families, tribes, parv orders, magna orders, cohorts, legions, microphylum, or even realms. In short, the more you dig into taxonomy and the evolution of species, the more the barrier between the creation of life and creative writing starts to blur. Fortunately, however, most of the time it can be ignored. But when looking at the white beam, it is best to say that... King Philip came over from Great Spain seeking scallops. So what is a subspecies? Mayer and Ashlock, in Principles of Systematic Zoology, describe it as... A subspecies is an aggregate of phenotypically similar populations of a species, inhabiting a geographic subdivision of the range of that species and differing taxonomically from other populations of that species. Put simply... It is a grouping of a particular species which due to a cut-off location a particular local climate and normally a fair chunk of time has evolved into something else distinct a subspecies now give it longer still and a future space botanist may come along and reclassify it as a new species in its own right not a subspecies but its whole own species a good example in the animal kingdom that shows why this categorisation matters lies with the elephant. I was always told there were two species of elephant and that was it. The African and Indian. One with big ears, the other with small. But in actual fact it transpires that there are hosts of subspecies under this big-eared umbrella. But to focus on the African elephant, there are two genetically unique subspecies. The forest African elephant and the savannah African elephant. They diverged from each other about five to six million years ago, but whereas CITES, that's the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species, views them as two subspecies, the IUCN, the International Union for Conservation of Nature, has recently started to treat them as two different species in their own rights. Now what does this mean? Well, it is all about survival. To start with, There aren't many African elephants left, but of what there is, there are far fewer forest African elephants than savannah African elephants. If you group both collectively, simply as the species African elephant, then this population may well keep declining. And within this, the smaller subspecies population of African forest elephants may well vanish, go extinct before we get our conservation caps firmly pulled on. Listing the forest heffalump as a unique species, therefore, as the IUCN just has, means we highlight just how few individuals of the forest elephant remain, and they kick us into action sooner, e.g. now. It is semantics to humans, but it equates to life and death in the forests of Africa. Right, back to white beams. There are loads of subspecies of white beam, far more than there are subspecies of African elephant. Some of which have already been declared full species. So what does this tell us about white beams? Well, for one, the whole Sorbus group is apomictic, meaning one tree can produce viable seeds without the need for fertilisation from another. It's like the queen alien in Aliens who seemingly produces facehuggers without ever having had any alien sexy times. This might lead you to think, therefore, that whitebeams should be quite a common species, easily reproducing alone, whimsically covering the hillside with clones of itself. Well, this is not the case. Reproducing asexually reduces any genetic variation, which in turn makes these trees extremely vulnerable to the slightest environmental change. They have to quickly adapt or die. And since the Ice Age, our climate on occasion has changed quite spectacularly and indeed continues to, and this has led to the white beams evolving into a host of locally specific micro-subspecies, and that is why, fanfare please, I am currently sitting in Cheddar Gorge. Cheddar Gorge and its famous cave network were formed by meltwater floods during the periglacial periods of the past 1.2 million years. Now, approximately 11,700 years on since the last ice age, it is clear to see how this remote geographical landscape could provide an isolated niche for subspecies of whitebeam to evolve. It is very steep, there is little animal life, and the gorge holds a unique climate, it's gorgeous today, and it is cut off from anything else similar anywhere nearby. But it is not a huge area, and as such, discovered only ten years ago, is the Cheddar whitebeam, Sorbus cheddarensis, or if you've been paying close attention, the Sorbus aria. Cheddarensis. To be more precise, at the time that these Cheddar Whitebeams were discovered, there were thought to be only 19. That is one nine of these Cheddar Whitebeams living wild. As well as that, ironically, or you could argue hysterically, the Cheddar Whitebeam is currently threatened. Threatened by goats. Goats specifically introduced to keep down the growth of new trees to encourage the growth of an equally rare plant, the Cheddar Pink. Another thing about whitebeams is that whitebeam subspecies can easily cross-pollinate with other whitebeam subspecies and indeed with all members of the Sorbus genus. One of these crosses is the Bristol whitebeam, originally called Sorbus aria Torminalis, which is only found in the Avon Gorge in Bristol, which is not too far from here. Currently, about 300 individuals exist, but its population is said to be increasing. This Bristol whitebeam is a hybrid of the common white beam and the wild service tree, which we will be looking at next week. But what is special about this white beam is that it is now deemed distinct enough in its own right to appease taxonomically obsessed botanists and is now viewed as a species and not a subspecies at all. It is now called Carpathia bristoliensis. Oh, and if you have listened to all of this, just wanting to know what a white beam looks like, what it's used for, and what its folkloric quirks are. Well, the underside of the leaves are white, hence its name. The blossom is typical of the rosaceae, and is white too. The berries are red. The wood is good and hard, traditionally used for making cogs. And feel free to write in with your white bean folk stories, and I will tack them on to next week's episode. And that is it. That is all about the white beam. That is all about the African elephants. That is all you need to know about taxonomy. Thank you very much for listening to this scientific episode of Trees of Crowd. I hope it has been enlightening. And I will leave you with the only mnemonic your life will ever need. King Philip came over from Great Spain seeking scallops. Goodbye for now. Bye bye. A oh, putting the secrets and stories beneath the 56-ish native trees of the British Isles. A couple of post episode credits for you this week. Firstly, many thanks to Pete Basham, the only man who I believe capable of almost making Mayer and Ashlock penetrable earlier on in the episode and I think you will all agree that he succeeded with aplomb. And secondly, one of the things I didn't mention in this episode is that the fantastic German forester and author of The Hidden Life of Trees, Peter von Leben, referred to trees due to their prominence in the botanical world as plant elephants, which I love. It perhaps goes some way to justify my slight diversion into discussing African elephants this week. That aside, in a few weeks' time, I'm very happy to be bringing you an episode with Peter, one which I cannot wait to share. Anyway, that is all. Thank you, as always, to my editor, Ollie. And for you guys for listening, off you pop. Go and hug a plant elephant or seven. Bye-bye.